wanted to do today is simply and, and briefly talk about what worship is. What comes to your mind when somebody says, we're going to worship? Or if we were told, um, if you were asked, would you lead worship at church this Sunday? Or if we said we were going to have a worship night, typically what comes to mind is music. And I'm not sure, well, not, let me rephrase that, I'm, I'm absolutely sure, that we have not done ourselves a whole lot of favors by limiting our definition of worship to music. Worship, the, the root of the word worship is the word worth. And in that sense, everything we do is an act of worship. Everything we do uh, proclaims the worth of something. Whether it's to sin and declare something else as worth more, more worthy than God, everything is worship. When we pray, it is declaring the worth of God. When we sing, it is declaring the worth of God. When we give, it is declaring the worth of God. Everything is worship. I think as we think of corporate worship, which is not a word corporate prayer, corporate worship, what, what does that mean? It, uh, it just means whole body. When we talk about corporate worship, it's the whole body worshiping together. When we talk about corporate prayer, at Trinity, it's about 10 people praying together, and I'm praying that someday it will be the whole body praying together, but, but it is the whole body gathering for prayer. That's what the word corporate means. And I think corporate worship is, is primarily two things. It is primarily confession and response. Uh, confession, I don't mean confession of sin, though that can certainly and is certainly part of it. By confessing, uh, the word confess simply means to, to agree with to say what is, what is true. And one of the things that has been done historically throughout the church is, is confessions, uh, not against sin, but confessions of, of what we believe and, and what we believe to be true. In fact, and, and this is going to be kind of a theme that runs throughout our worship today, the, Israel and even the early church, they didn't have access to Bibles the printing press is a relatively new invention, so people didn't have their own Bibles. And so one way they learned Bible truth was through what we call catechism. Uh, it was a series of teaching questions and answers to kids and adults so that they knew what was true when they didn't have a Bible to read on their own. But another means was confessions, and the church would uh, read confessions together as they were gathered for worship, to, to say together, to confess together, to proclaim together what is true. And then following confession, following the proclamation of an agreement of truth, is usually what we would call worship. And in the sense, it's, it's response. It's responding to, to something that is, is true. As, uh, as certain veins of modern worship music uh, get dumber and dumber, like I, I don't try and mean that, that uh, in a bad way, but we're, we're dumbing down the truth that's in worship, uh, in worship songs today. I think what we do is we hinder our ability to worship because then we give ourselves less truth to respond to. 
Less truth of who God is and less truth of what he has done. And so one of the muscles I want to exercise together today is the, the exercise of confession. So if you would stand with me, we're going to see on the screen, I'm going to see it behind you, you'll see it here with me. I would like to read together the Nicene Creed. I think I put a date on the first slide. Yes, uh, the date of the Nicene Creed is around 325 A.D., and the Council of Nicaea. This was a council of people who, when, when heresy threatened the church, gathered in Nicaea to come up with a doctrinal statement that said, this is what we believe to be true. And so we're going to read this together as part of our worship today. You will notice that uh, the first line, uh, it, which is all the way to the left, those are kind of large categories, and then everything that the, the creed um, says about, so this one is uh, God the Father, the Almighty, is going to be indented so that it'll just help us keep these things in mind. So as we worship today, would you read aloud with me, the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. We'll need the next slide. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You may have a seat. The word Catholic there, as you can see by what I put in parentheses, uh, means universal. Not Roman Catholic, not, not big C Roman Catholic, but little c is just a word that means universal. And so the confession there is not that we believe in the Roman Catholic Church, but that we believe in one holy, global, eternal, and apostolic church. Amen. As we um, continue in our worship today, one of the things I want to do is simply tell you the true story of the nation of Israel. Because uh, today, as we come to God's word here uh, in a little bit, we're, we're going to... Um, we're going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah, actually. In the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah is one book together, and some of this story will make sense as to why. And then next week... 
we're going to look at the we're going to begin looking at the book of Daniel and how to live faithfully in a foreign land. But uh, one of the things that's really really important about Ezra and Nehemiah and about Daniel is their place in God's redemptive story. And if you don't know and if you have kids I would encourage you to teach them the story of of God's redemption throughout history and where their place is in it. I think sometimes we underestimate the need in our lives for story. I know I've mentioned it before and and made a joke of it, but there's a reason why why Halloween and Comic-Con are wildly popular um, people want to, to, to feel like their life is part of a bigger story than just the things that go on. We were, we were made by God to be part of, of his story. It amazed me uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were at uh, Barnes & Noble how much Harry Potter you can still buy so far after the fact. People still want to be a part of these great and powerful stories. And we all have a place in God's story, but I want to—I just want to recount, and I'll give you some approximate dates as we consider uh, uh, where Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel uh, are in the story of God's redemptive history. Uh, of course, we know that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created Adam and Eve, and they had children. And fast forward to uh, Genesis seven, and we find that the earth is already a desperately wicked place. And God decides to, to in some way hit the reset button, and he floods the earth, and he kills everybody on, on earth in righteous judgment except for Noah and his three sons and their four wives. So eight people make it through this flood safely. And Noah's sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, we get some of their history throughout, uh, some of their lineage throughout the book of Genesis as well. But through, the, through his son, Shem, is born this man named Abram, in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, U-R, in the Middle East. And, uh, and his father, at some point, decides he's going to move his family to the land of Canaan. This is what we would call modern-day Israel. And they don't quite make it all the way. They make it to a place called Haran. And Haran uh, is where Abram is living and, and working, and minding his own business, and caring for his brother's son, Lot, um, who, who his brother had died, and so he's caring for his son and his wife, and, and they have no children, which would have been a shameful thing. And God comes to Abraham and he, about 2100 BC. Now, remember, as we think about dates, uh, BC counts down. So, Early, if I say early 1900 BC, that would be like 1990. We would think of that AD as late because BC moves one direction and, and AD moves the other. So uh, we'll just, I'm not going to give too specific of dates, but around 2100 AD, God shows up to unsuspecting Abraham and he calls him. He calls him to leave the place where he's living and to go to a land that he'll show him and that he, through his descendants, is going to bless the whole world. Uh, Around the mid-2000s BC, so uh, 50 plus years later, Isaac, the son that God had promised to Abraham, whose name has now been changed by God to Abraham, uh, is born to uh, Abraham and Sarah in the mid-2000s. 
late 2000s, is born two sons to, uh, to Isaac, Jacob and Esau. And God chooses the younger of these twins, uh, Jacob, to be the, the one through whom this promise would continue. And then in the early 1900s BC, Abraham dies. Jacob uh, marries a, a couple of wives and has several children, the youngest of whom at this point in the story is a, a boy named Joseph. And, and Joseph is the only son of Jacob's favorite wife. And so he is the favored son. And his older brothers hate him for it. That he is not supposed to be the favored son in this culture. The, the oldest is to be the favored son. But Jacob favored Joseph. And Joseph begins to have these dreams. Dreams that are, are, are pretty clearly dreams of his brothers bowing down to him as he rules over them. And this makes them angry. And so they decide to kill him. One of his brothers, in a twist of God's sovereignty, uh, convinces his brothers to throw him in a pit instead of kill him, and he wants to go rescue him. But before he can rescue him, the brothers sell Joseph into slavery. Joseph uh, goes into, uh, as a slave, into Egypt, and he begins working uh, in a high-ranking official's house named Potiphar, and God blesses everything that, that uh, he touches. We talk about the Midas touch, we should talk about the Joseph touch. Everything Joseph touched, God blessed and grew and thrived, and Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything in his house because Joseph took such good care of it. And one day, Potiphar's wife uh, tries to seduce Joseph, and Joseph, uh, being a godly man, uh, resists the temptation and flees Potiphar's house, and the incident ends up with Joseph in jail, being accused and imprisoned. And so he's gone from this, uh, he's gone from slavery and now comfort as a high-ranking uh, slave in charge of Potiphar's house to jail. And Pharaoh's uh, baker and cupbearer are thrown into jail. They have dreams. Joseph interprets those dreams. Later, Pharaoh has a dream and interprets Pharaoh's dream. And Joseph gets moved into this uh, high-ranking position over all of Egypt as he rescues Egypt from this famine that's coming. And, and, uh, and so there's Pharaoh, and then there is Joseph. Joseph's family... Uh, his brothers, in fulfillment of these dreams that God had given him, they come to Egypt to get food, and they bow before their brother, not knowing who he is. And he reveals himself to them, and he forgives them, and he welcomes them, and the whole family moves to Egypt and begins to multiply there. And from this, Jacob's name, by the way, was changed to, by God to Israel, and so now, this is the beginning of what we think of as the nation of Israel. Not in the location we would think of it today, but in Egypt. And around 1800 BC, Joseph dies. But his family, this nation that we would call Israel, uh, these Hebrews as they would have been called then, 
continue to multiply in the land of Egypt. And, and so much so that they kind of become a threat to an Egyptians and the Egyptians. And the pharaohs changed and they forget all about who Joseph was and what he had done for the country. And around 1600 uh, BC, uh, Israel begins to be um, oppressed made slaves, and hard labor is given to the nation of Israel by the pharaohs. About 150 years after that, uh, mid-1400s BC, a man named Moses, who by God's providence was raised in uh, Pharaoh's own house and court, raised as a daughter, uh, or as a son of Pharaoh's daughter, is called by God to go to the nation of Egypt and to Pharaoh and to proclaim the freedom of the Israelites. Of course, we, we know that Pharaoh resists and the ten plagues come upon the nation of, of Israel. And, and finally, after the firstborn son of every Egyptian is killed, Pharaoh lets the people go. And they, they leave, and through great and miraculous means, God rescues them once again from the Egyptians, and he is sending them off to the promised land. But almost immediately, the people begin to grumble, and they complain, oh, we're going to die here in the desert, it's hot, we're walking, we were better off in Egypt, which certainly is not true, but, uh, but we're pretty good at complaining, and, and so were the Israelites. And so they begin to wander, and God says, none of you are going to see the promised land. Every one of you is going to die, and it will be your children that enter into the promised land. And so while they're wandering, God gives them instructions to build a tabernacle. It's like a port of church. It's this tent where worship of God would take place, and there were sacrifices, and where God's very presence dwelt. And he gave instructions for each of these tribes from each of Joseph's or Jacob's sons to camp around it as they wandered through the desert. And so they, as they're wandering through the desert, waiting for really a whole generation to die so that they can move into the promised land, the area that we think of Israel of as Israel today, uh, they, they've got everything they need there. And so uh, they're given the law, how to obey God, they're given the tabernacle, and how to worship God. And then in the late 1400s, uh, we, uh, jo- Joshua... Uh, takes the people. Moses has died. Joshua is his successor. And Joshua takes his people into the promised land. And they begin to settle the promised land. Within about 50 years of that, so about the mid-1300s, there is uh, great wickedness in the nation of Israel. And we enter the period that we would call the period of the judges in nation's history, in, in Israel's history. So Israel has come out of captivity in Egypt. They're done wandering in the desert. They're into the promised land. But rather than worshiping God there, they begin to worship false idols. They begin to sin greatly. And we get, enter into this period of the Judges where there's this cycle. If you read the book of, of Judges, there's this cycle all the way throughout the, the book of Judges where the people sin greatly against God. And God sends some kind of discipline on them. Usually it's the oppression of another nation. 
another king, another nation comes and takes them captive or attacks them, and they, they in desperation, turn to God who sends a deliverer or a judge, a political leader, that's what the word judge, not, not like robe and gavel kind of judge, but sends a leader to them to lead them into freedom, and the people, uh, after having repented of their sin, are freed from their oppression, but then they quickly forget God. And they sin, and they get oppressed, and they repent and cry out, and God raises up a judge. And then they sin, and God uh, brings a nation in to oppress them, and then they confess and repent, and God brings in a judge. And this cycle goes round and round throughout the book of Judges for about 300 years. And then about the mid-1000s BC, the nation of Israel decides against God's advice, that is never a good thing, that they want a king. And they specifically state that they want a king to be like the rest of the nations. And they were not to be like the rest of the nations. God was to be their king. He was to be their ruler. He was to be in charge of them. But they want to be like the nations And so God gives them what they want. Be careful what you pray for because God just might give it to you. And so in the mid-1000s, Saul is made king, but uh, in great impatience, he sacrifices to God, which was not allowed of kings, that was only allowed of the priests, and God says, you're done as king. And he raises up a boy who killed a giant and lions, and bears named David to be the next king. And David, with great patience, waits for Saul to die before he's king. But there's enemies everywhere. And so David is this warring king. He is a a king who is fighting off Israel's enemies, who is clearing out the land, who is, is keeping the people safe. And he's a man, despite his sin, after God's own heart. And he has this great desire to build a house for God. Not a wandering tent, but a permanent temple. And God says, you, you are not going to build this. There is blood all over your hands. Now, he's not faulting David for that. He said, but your son, who will reign after you, he will build the temple. And so upon David's death, Solomon becomes king in Israel. And in the mid-900s BC, Solomon is made king, and he begins to build this temple. And if you you look up online some models and images of Solomon's temple, it was no doubt the greatest structure in the ancient world. There are stones, I've seen them with my own eyes, in the foundation of the temple on the, mount, uh, on the temple mount in Jerusalem that are too big to be picked up by any crane that exists in the world today. It is an, the, 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 the seams on the stones are so tight you can't slide a piece of paper between them. You can't even shoot a laser beam between them. They're so perfect. And there was gold everywhere. The nation was so wealthy that silver, which is what much of the coins were made out of, meant nothing in Solomon's reign. The queen of Sheba came to see his wisdom. The whole world flocked to Israel to see not only the glory of Solomon's temple, but to hear of his wisdom. It would have been an amazing sight to behold. 
But Solomon, uh, giving himself in too many ways to sin, uh, around 930 BC, there's conflict in his kingdom and the nation of Israel is ripped in two. And you have the northern tribes in what was called Israel in the north with Samaria as their capital. And then you have the southern kingdom called Judah with Jerusalem as its capital. And so it's almost like north Israel and south Israel, except they were called Israel and, they were, and, and Judah. And these two countries separated under Solomon's lead. Now, uh, each of those nations had 20 kings in their history, all recounted for us in the book of 2 Kings. And of the 20 kings in the northern kingdom, anybody want to fashion a guess how many of them followed the Lord? How many? None. Not one. Not one northern king walked in the way of the Lord. Israel was a wicked nation. And in Judah, of their 20 kings, only eight were pleasing to the Lord. Only eight walked in the Lord's footsteps. Twelve of those kings were wicked. And for 200 years, God sends prophets to these nations saying, turn from your wickedness. Turn from your idolatry. Turn from your rebellion. Turn from your sin. And if you don't, I'm sending you into captivity. And they don't. And he begins to promise to send them into captivity. And in the late 700s BC, so the low 700 numbers, the nation of Assyria sweeps in and, and, and defeats the nation of Israel and begins hauling people off into captivity. And, and Israel ceases to be a nation as, is, as, uh, as Assyria conquers it. But uh, Assyria, after coming to take in uh, the northern kingdom, uh, comes to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. And the king, through stripping the temple of all its gold and many other things, pays off the king of Assyria, avoids destruction, and Judah becomes like a vassal state of Assyria. And for a while, Judah stays in the land. But it doesn't last very long. About 200 years later, uh, Judah, again, being a wicked country, not following after God, uh, seeking after idols, worshiping after idols, sinning without any uh, uh, conscience in the matter, God sends in the nation of Babylon, now the world power, to come and conquer this southern kingdom of Judah. And Babylon comes in and defeats them. And, and in 586 uh, BC, Jerusalem falls to Babylon and, and it is destroyed. The temple, Solomon's temple, is destroyed. All of the gold utensils that are made for worshiping God, they're all hauled off to Babylon. Every bit of wealth, every bit of anything that existed in the temple to serve God was hauled off to the nation of Babylon, including uh, the people. Not all of them. Some were left in the land, but many were hauled off into Babylonian captivity. Well, about 50 years later, in 537, through a series of providential events, God begins to return the people out of Babylon back to the nation of 
Israel as we would understand it at that point in time in the Old Testament. But really, they're, they're heading back to Judah. They're heading back to where the temple was. And, and they begin uh, in, in 536 to rebuild the temple. And so the temple work begins in 536. There's a series of complications, but eventually it's rebuilt. And in 515, the temple is rebuilt. But it's not like Solomon's temple. It's small. It's not as glorious. There's not as much gold. It's not as pretty. It's not as detailed and ornate. It's a much smaller temple. And and historians call this period in Israel's history the second temple period. And upon completion of this temple, the the people who were young in the nation of Israel, uh, they're excited and they're cheering. The temple is rebuilt. Worship is restored. But those who remembered the first temple who were young when they were hauled off into captivity, but now are old, they see the temple and they're like, oh, this is is nothing like what it was. And their cries are not cries of joy, but of sorrow and of sadness. But nonetheless, the temple stands. Another 50 to 60 years later, 458 uh, BC, Ezra is sent uh, again out of Babylon to uh, to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall around the temple. Or, uh, I'm sorry, that's Nehemiah. In 458, Ezra, a, a priest and a scribe, is sent to Jerusalem. And then in 444, Nehemiah is sent to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And this is where we're going to pick up our story later. Now, why have I taken all of the time to go through this? Because what we're going to see today in the book of Nehemiah is this great uh, return to worship as a nation in the promised land. So we have to understand the history. But we also, this is also going to be helpful in thinking next week of the book of Daniel. Because Daniel, he writes from Babylon. He's one of the captives in Babylon. And that's where we see this book of Babylon unfold. And so uh, Daniel has been hauled off from his homeland to a foreign nation, a nation that does not love God, that does not honor God, does not worship God, that loves sin, and in fact, even outlaws the worship of God. We are seeing this in some of our bordering nations. And yet Daniel remains faithful. And so it's important to understand where Daniel fits in the story. It's also important to understand where Nehemiah fits in the story as he is returning from this Babylonian captivity to rebuild the wall around the temple in Jerusalem that had been destroyed. Lord, we thank you for the story of your, well, your story. We thank you for what you have done in in raising up a nation a nation that we can learn from in good ways and in bad, but ultimately uh, from whom would come the Christ, Jesus, to redeem us. Because, Lord, it's easy to look at the nation of Israel and say, oh, how could they be like that? But the truth of the matter is, Lord, we are all like that. We are sinners. We are idolaters. We quickly run from you and turn from you. But you offer us great forgiveness in Christ. 
So we thank you for, uh, for, for showing us, for revealing to us uh, your story of redemption throughout history. And it is for your glory that we pray and look into these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was at a conference. Um, you guys are going to be sick of me here shortly, but um, most of this was kind of a, well, it doesn't matter, but I was at a conference some years ago. And uh, one of the conference speakers uh, was talking about uh, another Christian, another uh, uh, pastor, not, not like from far, far in history, because the book I'm about to refer you to is a fairly uh, recent book, but, uh, but, but he quoted another um, uh, pastor. He was saying, he was introducing this book that I have in my hand here called The Valley of Vision. And it was a book I'd never heard of. I'd seen it at conferences several times, and... Um, And he said, you know, so-and-so said if he were stuck on a deserted island and he could only have two books, the books he would want would be the Bible and the Valley of Vision. And I thought to myself, I better check this Valley of Vision out. It is a collection of Puritan uh, prayers. An Episcopal priest by the name of Arthur Bennett in England went through through some historical writings. And uh, in fact, in the beginning here, he kind of uh, gives a bibliography. The individual prayers are not assigned to who they're from, but the likes of um, Richard Baxter, uh, John Bunyan, Christmas Evans, uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, Thomas Watson, Isaac Watts are, are all in here. And so I thought, as I was thinking, what can we do for worship today? Uh, one of the things I thought was, I would love to share a prayer with you from the Valley of Vision. So this prayer is one of the ones that is uh, my, one of my absolute favorites. And it is called, Love Lusters at Calvary. And I've put the words on the screen so that you can follow along as I read these uh, to you. Uh, but as, we, as I read this, and, and my habit, my, my practice is to use one prayer uh, every morning as my own. I just pray through it slowly. I reflect on it. Um, and there is probably nothing that is served other than God's word and the Psalms to fuel my prayer life more than this book. I have learned in many ways to pray uh, from what I've read here. But would you join me in this prayer? And as, we, as I read it out loud and as you see it on the screen, uh, really think of it not merely as something we read, but offer this to the Lord as a prayer. My Father, enlarge my heart. Warm my affections. Open my lips. Supply words that proclaim love lusters at Calvary. There, Grace removes my burdens and heaps them on your son. Made a transgressor, a curse and sin for me. There the sword of your justice smote the man, your fellow. There your infinite attributes were magnified and infinite atonement was made. There infinite punishment was due and infinite punishment was endured. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. Cast off that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend. He was surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best. Stripped that I might be clothed. Wounded that I might be healed. A thirst that I might drink. 
tormented that I might be comforted, made a shame that I might inherit glory, entered darkness that I might have eternal life, light. My Savior swept, my Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes, groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain that I might have unfading health, bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem, bowed his head that I might uplift mine, experienced reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness, and died that I might live forever. O Father, who spared not your only Son that you might spare me, all this transfer your love designed and accomplished. Help me to adore you by lips and life. Oh, that my every breath might be ecstatic praise, my every step buoyant with delight, as I see my enemies crushed, Satan baffled, defeated, destroyed, sin buried in the ocean of reconciling blood, heaven's gates closed, or hell's gates closed, heaven's portal open. Go forth, O conquering God, and show me the cross, mighty to subdue, comfort, and save. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of this transfer that your love accomplished. That everything due me was transferred to your son at Calvary. And that he endured everything I deserved so that we might graciously and gloriously gain everything he deserves. Lord, may the knowledge of the cross and the power of your spirit subdue and save our lives. May we not be like the nation of Israel, seeking after idols, false gods, things that cannot satisfy our soul. May we seek to have our souls satisfied only in you. And may we always be mindful of just how much Christ took from us, for us, and how much he gives to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn now to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. I'm going to encourage you not to be scared by the number of points that are on your outline there. Um, I, I think having had explained the history of the nation of Israel and Nehemiah leading up to this point, uh, this, uh, this sermon should flow pretty quickly. But follow along with me as I read to you Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they said to Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could understand when listening on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Mekijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. 
And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed low and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, were providing understanding of the law to the people while the people stood in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, explaining and giving insight, and they provided understanding of the reading. Let's pray once again as we ask God's favor on the preaching of his word. Lord, we we do ask that you would give favor to the preaching of your word, not only here among us, but Lord, I would pray for Christ Community Fellowship this morning and for Pastor Matt as he brings your word. Lord, give, uh, give those who are teaching in your church around the globe clarity today. Give us faithfulness to the text. Lord, give your churches great health and joy and delight in you. Uh, may the worship of you be profound response to the truth of who you are and the greatness of what you have done. Lord, we pray the same thing for InterVarsity here at Whitman and for Donan as she is leading that ministry currently uh, in the absence of a leader. Lord, we pray that you would uh, raise up uh, a new, new campus staff person uh, to do the work of the ministry there. Lord, we also pray that you would raise up new leaders who, uh, who might replace uh, the seniors who are doing uh, faithful work there for you uh, this year. Would you put it in the hearts of some of your people there to step up and to lead these Bible studies? Lord, we praise you for the three seniors who are leading Bible studies there. We praise you for the new students who are attending Bible studies. Lord, we pray that you might show us more and more how we might wisely engage students there at Whitman and the ministry of InterVarsity that we support financially, but but are so close we could probably support in better ways. Lord, uh, may we even uh, seek ways to be a church. As as one of the requests is for uh, new students who are joining Whitman as freshmen and looking for ways and places to encourage uh, their faith and to to grow in their faith and to stand firm for you uh, in the coming years while they seek an education there in a place that very much does not love you. Lord, we pray that you might show us how we might have a role in that, how we might find ways to be a a, a church where they would want to be and to learn and to grow and to hear your word. Lord, might we step into that gap. Lord, let your word sound forth from us. As a church, let it go out into the world, but let it sound forth here from this pulpit as well until you return. And Lord, we ask that you would just give us insight and understanding and obedience to your word today. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the past two weeks, we've looked at this new vision for Trinity. This uh, rephrased vision might be a better statement because uh, it's, it's not new in what we're trying to do. It's simply new in wording that we are a church that is taking steps together to love God and to make him known. That that is going to be the North Star that drives us that we are going to be together, that we are going to be in process, that we're going to be uh, growing into wholehearted followers of Jesus, and that we are going to go out into the world and make him known. And the values that are going to drive us as a church 
are God's word and the clear proclamation of the gospel, unity as a church, relationships with each other, dependence upon God through prayer and one another in relationships, and then discipleship, making investment in others. But those are great ideas. They're great things to talk about. What's next? What is a church that is doing these things actually look like? How do we take steps to do this? Well, I think that's where Nehemiah 8 comes in. I think we get a beautiful picture of what's going on here. As you know, and as you have heard, as I kind of counted uh, Israel's history to you, the people of God for a couple of uh, a hundred years have been away from the place of God. They've been away from the promised land. They've been separated as a people. They're not together. They've been separated from the worship of God and the word of God. They didn't each have their own Bible that they could just read at home. In fact, one of the things that we find is that the Bible had been so absent from the life of God's people that when, they, when the exiles returned to the nation to rebuild the temple and the, wall, and the wall, they found a copy of God's law. And it had been largely absent from the people. And so now there's this return of the people of God, to the place of God, to the worship of God, around the word of God. And there is so much of this that sounds so similar to me of of where the church is. This sounds a little bit in many ways like uh, the post-COVID church. In many ways, the church of God has been exiled into our own homes. You, you can't meet. You can only meet online. I'm sure if we were all really, really honest, there's probably been much neglect of God's word in that time. The people of God have been separated from the worship of God, around the word of God, in their regular lives, their daily lives. But it feels a little bit like the, the church is undergoing a return. We're, we, we've been fearful of COVID long enough. We're just going to go to church. Maybe there's still some fear there. If you're, if you're struggling with fear, whether that's in here today and you're here or whether you're watching online, I would remind you of two things. Number one, remember the providence of God. When when we look at the story of, of Israel's history, God is clearly at work controlling all things. And God is in control of this too. If you if you struggle with fear about anything for that matter, remind yourself of the sovereign control of God over all things. And number two, Remind yourself that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, death can only do one thing to you, and that is deliver you to Jesus. And that, whenever it comes, will be a good day. It will be the greatest day. But that's all death can do to us, is deliver us to Jesus. Back to my point, it feels like the church 
could be in the midst of a return. We know the drill. We've done this for a couple of years. We're less fearful. We're gathering together. Omicron, if you've done any research, has a promise of, of moving us from pandemic to endemic. And, and the church is regathering. But, but I think... I think like we saw in this story, as the people of God return, there's, there's a danger. There's a danger of, of looking at the return and saying, look how small it is. Three, four years ago, Trinity's numbers were more than double what they are today. If I'm being real honest... I don't think we have much need of two services. Uh, week in, week out, we have a packed first service and an empty second service. And the logistics of the way some of our classes are changing on Sunday mornings are, are going to empty out our second service even further and move people into first service. And I think it's going to be real tempting if you've been around Trinity for a while as we, as we return from exile to look around and say, things aren't as big as they were. The, the temple's not as glorious. There's not as much gold. Don't you remember how it was? If you're not, if you haven't been around Trinity, like I haven't been around for that long, you might look at a full room and go, this is incredible. And there's going to be people on both sides of that equation. One of the interesting things God does, though, as the nation of Israel returns and rebuilds the temple, even though it's smaller and less glorious, and they build the wall, even though it's sloppier and not as pretty, is he sends them the prophet Haggai, whose message is several different things. He calls the nation of Israel, to, as does the book of Nehemiah, to kind of reorient their lives. Haggai says, look, the, the temple's rebuilt, and you're all at home, you're comfortable, you're happy there, your homes are well attended to, while my house sits empty. Go get to work. That's one of the messages of Haggai, but the other message is this. Haggai says, to those who remember the glory of the previous temple, he says, just wait. Because it may be smaller, maybe not as big, but I'm going to dwell there. I'm going to dwell there the same as I dwelt in the last temple. And what made the temple such an incredible place was not how much gold was on the doors, but that God's presence was there. I think there's some truth there for the church as well. As, as we return, as we come out of exile, as we see, you know, it's not just our homes, but it is the, the temple of God of which we as individuals are each living stones, as Peter tells us, that together we make the temple of God. That, 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 that it's time to give some attention to the temple but we must remember what makes Trinity glorious is not how many numbers there are on a Sunday, but that God is present here among us. It is Jesus Christ who is the glory of the church. 
It is God who fills the temple. And whether there is two of us or 2,000 of us, God's presence is equally glorious. But here, in Nehemiah 8, the people have returned. The temple has been built. The wall is up. And they're beginning to return to worship. And in this story, I think we see how a returning people of God take steps together. And so let's look at eight principles for taking steps together from the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to look at these in terms of a healthy church. Number one, a healthy church gathers. A healthy church gathers. I'm not going to beat this drum very hard. I've beat it a lot lately, but it's here in the text. Notice chapter 8, verse 1. All the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. The first thing they did when things were rebuilt, restored, and people are being called back into worship and fellowship together is they gather. They gather as one person. They gather together. A healthy church gathers. A local church is the gathered people of God. God calls his people out of the church, out of the world and into the church. Just like he called Abraham out of the world and into the promised land. Just like he called Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. He calls his people today out of the world and into the church. And we gather as a temple. God is present among us. We worship and then we scatter for witness. We go back out so that God can call more people in. Let's never forget to put as much emphasis on the going out to call people in as we put on the coming in to gather as the people of God. One does not take priority of the other. We simply gather and grow and scatter and tell. A healthy church gathers. Number two, a healthy church demands the word. A healthy church demands the word. All the people gathered as one man in this, at, as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And, and check this out. This might be one of my favorite things in the whole Bible as a pastor. And they said to Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which, by, which Yahweh has commanded to Israel. They told Ezra to bring the book. I'm reminded here of John chapter 12, verse 20 and 21. We see these uh, Gentile, non-Jewish believers beginning to seek Jesus and to come to faith. And some of these Gentiles uh, are coming in verse tw- or John chapter 12, verses 20 and 21 to see Jesus. I love this. John 20, 12, 20 and 21. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Oh, if uh, that should be the cry of every church. That should be the demand of every church to its leaders. 
Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Could you imagine what a church could look like if all of the people gathered as one demanded of its leaders that they bring the book so that we might see Jesus? Parents, demand this of your children's ministry. Demand it of your youth ministry. Demand it of your adult Bible classes. Demand it of the elders and the pastors Sunday mornings. And demand it of me. And if you remember from some recent sermons and things that I've shared, I'm a congregationalist. Which means I believe the elders and and I are under your authority. The church must demand that its leaders bring the word. The word of God and the spirit of God are sufficient to do the work of God. I love this. I love, I love the fact that in many ways and often, this is a church that demands this of me. I delight to have this demanded of me. I can think of no greater joy than pastoring a church that tells its leaders to bring the book that the Lord commanded. A healthy church demands the word. Thirdly, a healthy church preaches the word. Well, didn't you just say that, Logan? Well, kind of. But um, sadly, uh, this, is, this might re- reveal my age. Some of you won't get this, but uh, um, I remember seeing a a well-known pastor at one point in time, he's uh, fallen into sin and uh, he's still pastoring a different church now, um, but he, um, he set up a big, like Lily Tomlin-sized high chair on the stage. If you don't know who Lily Tomlin and what I'm referring to, don't worry about it. Set this gigantic high chair up on stage and talked about Christians who all they do is demand the word. Feed me, feed me, feed me, he said, like they're little toddlers just demanding to be fed. And criticized the church for demanding the word. And said the church just needs to share the gospel. I don't want to downplay, I don't, I don't want to downplay the need to share the gospel. We can't underestimate the the demand to bring the word either. Notice here that that it wasn't just that the people made the demand. Ezra, the priest, verse 2, brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could understand when listening on the first day of the seventh month. They, They demanded it and he did it. Sometimes churches demand things that aren't good. And when they do, the leadership has no responsibility to meet those demands. In 2 Timothy 4.2, we're told to preach the word. Ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort, excuse me, with complete patience and teaching. That's the demand. That was the demand on Ezra. It's the demand on me. But the people don't always want this. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, 
by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time is coming, notice this follows 2 Timothy 4.2, the demand to preach the word, 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. The reality is the closer we get to the end of things, the less people will want to hear the word. Perhaps this is why Hebrews 10 demands that we prioritize the gathering all the more as we see the day of God drawing near. A great church demands the word and a great church gets the word. Number four, a healthy church worships together. Look at the second part of verse 2. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could understand when listening. Men, women, and all who could understand. I don't think, if, if the way you lead your family is to come one service and divide and conquer, your children go to children's ministry while you sit in here, you're not doing yourself any favors. Or your youth go to the youth class, I'm all for children's ministry, and I'm all for youth ministry. But I think if all you do is divide, you're not doing yourself any favors. A healthy church worships together all who can understand gather. All who can understand gather around the word of God to hear from God. Nursery makes sense during a worship service for, for kids who can't understand. But if you, if you are insistent that you can only go to one service... You should worship together as a family. But our next point, point five, is a healthy church makes time for worship. A healthy church makes time for worship. Look at verse three. And he, that is Ezra, read from it, that is the law, before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. From early morning until midday. From nine to noon. The language I heard when I first got to Trinity is, invest your whole Sunday morning. The people of God invested their whole Sunday morning. Convenience is not the most important factor in planning a worship service. The church isn't a pit stop on your way to some other activity. Devote your whole morning to worship and fellowship. Go to a worship service together as a family and then serve somewhere or attend an adult Bible class or, or uh, a youth class or a children's class. First gather, then divide. But invest your whole Sunday morning. Worship takes time. Number six, a healthy church is attentive to God's word. A healthy church is attentive to God's word. Uh, look, at, look at the end of verse 3. And all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. We have churches who are, are di diminishing the amount of time of the preaching of the word so that we can sing more. We're attentive to our own voices more than we're attentive to the word of God. If a service goes long, I'm usually the first person to be blamed. 
Because the word of God is usually the first thing we want to diminish. When a service is getting full, usually it is me who is told I need to take less time. This is not right. Not because of me. It doesn't matter who's here. It's because of the word of God. And the people must demand the word of God and then be attentive to the word of God. They weren't seeking to be entertained. They wanted to hear from God and from his word. Notice also in verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people, like on a stage. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. We don't necessarily have to do that. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But a, a healthy A healthy church, a taking steps together church is attentive to God's word. Uh, Seventh, a healthy church responds to God's word. Look at verse six. Then Ezra blessed Yahweh the great God. He spoke well of Yahweh. He, He opened the word, he read the word, and then he spoke well of God. And all the people answered, amen, amen. Yes, Baptists, it's okay to say amen. Thank you. While lifting up their hands and bowing low and worshiped Yahweh with their faces. It is okay to the ground. It is okay to bow to the ground in worship if you are led to. It is okay to raise your hands in worship if you are led to. It is okay to say amen. We're simply not going to ask you to do that from the stage because we don't want to compel you to. We want it to be a response from you. But a healthy church responds to God's word. We, we sing, we, we cry out amen, we raise our hands, we bow before God. Music is not worship. Music does not fuel worship. Music absolutely is a helpful tool in worship. But the word of God is the fuel for worship And the response of your heart is worship. Are you looking for the opportunity to respond to God's word? Or are you looking for the exit? A healthy church responds to God's word. And lastly, number eight, a healthy church preaches expositionally. The Hebrew behind verses seven and eight are hard to to translate a little bit, they read from the book, from the law of God. My translation says, explaining and giving insight. Yours might say clearly. The verb in Hebrew behind that is the verb to divide or to explain or even to translate. Ezra read the law. He translated the law. And then they, that is the multiplicity of leaders, provided understanding of the law. They explained what it meant. That's what preaching is. Preaching is not a spiritual pep talk. Preaching is not telling you to feel good about yourself. Preaching is reading the word of God, translating the word of God, explaining the word of God, blessing the Lord God, and then calling you to respond. And your response is worship. A healthy church preaches the word. Some have even translated this, they read from the book of the law of God verse by verse and provided understanding of the reading. 
They translated as they went. A healthy church preaches expositionally. We, we give the sense, we explain what it means. We preach the word verse by verse and explain it. This is what a church does. It gathers. It gathers everyone together. It demands the word and preaches the word and explains the word and it responds to the word in worship and it devotes time to doing so. And I would encourage you on your own, here's your homework, read chapter 9 because the response of the people is interesting. They, they confess their sin. They, they speak out the truth of their sinfulness in response to God's word. I think we often think confession is a sign of something unhealthy in a church. As long as we worship on this side of eternity, there will be sin in the church and there will be something unhealthy in the church. But confession is a healthy response, not an unhealthy response. We should see regular confession of sin, whether it be individually to God or maybe to people who we trust, or confession of sins that we've committed corporately as a church, as a healthy sign. that We're regularly confessing our sin to God. Demand the word. Be attentive to the word. Give time to the worship and ministry of the word. Respond to the word. And that response, what happens in your heart, that's where worship is. That's the heart of worship. Lord, we, we confess to you that we're sorry for the thing we've made worship sometimes. And that we want to come back. We want to return, not from exile in a foreign land, but to the church and to worship as it ought to be. As our hearts respond to your truth and to your word and to all that you've done for us. Not only in history and, and bringing us to this point, but even in our lives right now and what you will do for us for eternity. We're sorry, Lord. We're sorry for the things that we have made worship at times. We're sorry for the things we have worshipped at times. Because you and you alone are worthy of worship. You and you alone are worth worship. Let us find our satisfaction in you. Lord, let us be a church taking steps together. Taking these steps, demanding the word, delighting in the word, responding to the word, preaching the word, being attentive to the word, and then going out and sharing the word. May it all be for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll, uh, as Bill 